All right, we are now joined by a very, very special recurring guest, friend of the podcast. It is Cincinnati Reds play-by-play man, John Sadak, live from a Holiday Inn Express. Uh, John has so graciously forced this podcast into his, his cram schedule, so I am forever grateful. John, how are you? I'm doing great. I mean, there's a free breakfast in the morning and unlimited bottled water, so that you can't really have a better oasis. <laughs> I uh, so you're on the road this weekend, Colin. That St. Bonaventure, right? Who who are they playing? Uh, it is St. Bonaventure, St. Bonaventure's homecoming game uh, against Davidson, the Wildcats. Okay, the, that's uh, an alma a- mater of Steph Curry. That's an A10. I, I work for GW, so I'm slowly learning some of these A10 schools. Um, how how much fun is it just having the opportunity, you know, when baseball is not going, just like to call basketball games? Oh, I love it. I mean, I, I love calling all sports. I played everything growing up. Um, supposedly, when I was five, I asked my mother, I, I don't remember this, um, if anyone had ever played professional football, basketball, and baseball, because it was my dream to play all three. And th- that's when I learned about Dave Winfield, you know, who had a Hall of Fame baseball career, but was drafted to play in the NBA and the NFL. Uh, and he became one of my early favorite players as, as a result of that. But, um, but I, I think each sport helps the other. They use different parts of your brain. Um, you think in a slightly different way. Um, and I just love games. I, I love the unscripted drama. So a- any chance to do anything is a ton of fun. Is it easy to flip the switch from like basketball, basketball prep mode to, to baseball mode? Is that an easy thing to do come February, March? It's easier and it gets progressively easier for me every year. Uh, and I hope that's continually the case. Um, when, when I was first doing it, I was in the minors and I was getting some of my first real reps with football and extended basketball. Um, it was harder. I would noticeably be almost too fast when I would start with baseball because I'd have long stretches on the road where I was solo. So I'm doing nine innings pre and post for half an hour each on my own. And there wasn't that built in buffer of a partner to kind of like say, Hey, settle down a little bit, let, let, let the game breathe a little bit more. Um, and then conversely, when I would start football, uh, it would take me some time to kind of ramp up, you know, some of the, the feel for certain moments. Um, but as time's gone on, no, I, I think it's gotten a lot easier. It's still conscious. I have to think about it. Uh, but I think I do a better job of it. Is that something that young broadcasters are more accustomed to is the switching back and forth between sports? Because I feel like people coming up, you have to, you know, you, you say yes to lots of opportunities. You're calling lots of different kinds of sports. They each have their own cadence and feel like, is that something that you learned early on, the ability to have, you know, multiple irons in your bag there? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think you're, I mean, my honest answer when people would ask me in the infancy of my career, um, what do you want to do? Do you have a preference in radio or TV or sport? I said, I want to work as many games as I can at the highest level I can, whatever that means. Like, um, but I also think it, it'd be a, a misnomer to say that today's broadcaster is more wide varied i think i think a generation two generations ago it was even more extreme i mean you had guys that you know that became mainstays that are still working you know guys like charlie steiner and sam rosen in the greater new york metro they would do things like aussie rules football you know like the wide world of sports would be around they would do like speed skating they would do like really obscure uh gentlemen i worked for my first on-air job at wylm news radio covered tick races in wisconsin like the insect tick was set up like a bullseye so i i think in years gone by, there was an even wider array and a necessity and acceptance and enjoyment of that. Um, if anything, I feel like some of the younger folks today become a little too linear, a little too, well, I'm a football basketball guy. Um, and for me, like some of my early opportunities came about because I could do other sports. Uh, when I first got into ESPN, I had a very limited inventory of games uh, and what seemed to be the pivot is the CP, the coordinating producers, my boss called and asked, have you ever done soccer? I have a last minute fill in need. And I had at my division three alma mater, they were very good and I liked it. And uh, so I did it not knowing that not only am I filling in at that time on that one game and helping him, he's a soccer nut. He coaches his daughter's travel team. He actually is in the truck producing the game. And I did it and I did well and he loved it my game inventory in football and basketball more than doubled the next year. I have to think that's directly related. 
You mentioned young broadcasters, uh, and you've been doing this for a while. I, I I make no bones about it. I tell everybody you're my favorite play-by-play man in baseball. Um, but when you when you're watching young people, new people in the profession, is there a couple things that you notice that stand out? It just like is are there trends you notice from young broadcasters? Um, I think there's good and bad. I think every person's their own person. Um, I, I do get tapes or requests of feedback from a lot of young voices. Um, the number one thing I would say is that most of us, I don't think it's specific to this generation. I think this was true of mine. It's probably been true a long time. Um, there's this obsessive idea that you have to get the best demo, that you're going to get the demo, the example of your work that's a five to 10 minute stretch that's going to get you every job in creation. And most of us tend to think that because in a good way, you know, we have this um, ego driven, it's this weird dichotomy. Like most of us are are insanely self-critical and it's nails on chalkboard to listen to ourselves and we can have gross insecurities. But then if we have a good cut, we think it's like the greatest thing ever. I always make the analogy. It's kind of how I took tests as a kid too. The time I thought I bombed, I actually did pretty well. And the time I thought I aced it, it probably didn't do so great. And I think it's similar when I call games. Um, And I see that increasingly on the younger end of the spectrum. And that's normal. Like you have to go through it. You have to learn some things by circumstance. Um, I, I tell the younger folks to me, the more I do this, the less I think your demo matters. So if your demo is otherworldly great, and I think there's only a very small handful of people that fit this Al Michaels, in my opinion, calling the NFL on TV, Dan Shulman calling baseball or college basketball. Uh, there are some individual talents who are otherworldly, just different. Great. I mean, let alone the Vin Scully's of the world who is self-explanatory. Uh, most of us are not that. But that doesn't mean you're not good. You're shades of gray. There's a lot of really good announcers, a lot. And there are some that aren't so good that get great jobs. And if what you're really asking for, as most of us are when we start, what's the secret sauce or the roadmap to getting to the dream job? It's getting a decision maker to like you. That's it. Um, So if there's anything that I see that's perhaps a a consistent element that's off, it's that... um, it's, it's elevating the idea of the perfect demo to the number one important thing. And, uh, and the understandable yearning of young announcers to connect with established announcers. That's fine. And that's good in the very beginning. And you do want to become the best version of yourself. And that can help to some extent. Um, but number one, you should be contacting decision makers. Like, and if there's any professional regret that I have, it's that I wasn't aggressive enough early enough. And I should have realized that way earlier. And, uh, because I, I try to be analytical and break things down. And I was emotional on the front end, as, as most of us are. I, I love the concept of perfection. I went back and last listened last time, and you said that there's no such thing as a perfect broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you like I like to think of you as one of the upper, like you're one, like I said, you're my favorite play-by-play man going. I think you're the best at what you do. Um, but I'm curious though, like what are, are there things that you're consciously trying to get better at? Are there things like obviously there's the human element, but how do you kind of view perfection and the human element in what you do all day? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I look to those that I look up to um, and, and I, I see many others in our field, not only those established that are many years my senior that I grew up with reverence of that I think will always be burnt that way into my brain, but even my peers, those that are my age and some, many that are younger. Um, you know, I came up with uh, in between A-ball and AAA, there were a number of other core announcers that we're all at similar levels now. You know, Jason Benetti and I were in the Carolina League and AAA together. Um, Will Fleming is with the Red Sox. Kevin Brown is with the Orioles. Uh, Jeff Levering and Josh Maurer, who are both with the Brewers. Uh, Bob Sosi is the voice of the Patriots. We were all peers. We were all friends in the same minor leagues working together. Um, and I, I love their talents. Um, I, I also, when I was in the minors, I uh, at the time, MILB.com would archive every minor league broadcast there was about a two or three season stretch where that happened where they became the streaming central site and auto recorded everything and so i couldn't listen to many other announcers while i'm calling my game we have similar start times but i'm up till 2 a.m working on game notes so i'm going to listen live to the pcl games or the you know other time zone texas league games or some of the midwest league games and then i'm going to go back and listen to games that happened concurrently with mine um, and I, I grew to love so much of what I heard from so many of those voices. Um, so yes, I'm always trying to get a better version of me. Like I, I think even down to the notes and charts, how I prepare for baseball, football, and basketball, 
Uh, there are at least minor tweaks that I make every year, so often within the year. Um, and if you were to compare what I have now versus what I had at the very beginning, you would see the similar structure, but they would look very different. Year to year, you wouldn't necessarily see that. Um, and as a play-by-play guy, I, I, I mostly look to my peers that are those announcers and solicit their feedback because you know, I respect them and I think they're super talented. So I want to hear when you listen to this stretch, um, and I'll, I'll ask them, go to this game, this inning, or you know, this five-minute whatever in a football game. Let me know what you think. Um, and I, I, I thankfully have a core group of people that will be honest with me and sometimes tell me, that sucked, or you should have handled that differently. Um, and I, I also think with, uh, with all my sports increasingly now, increasingly now outside of college football, with Randy Cross pretty much every game on CBS, um, almost every other sport I do, my partners rotate a lot. And to me, particularly television, is an analyst-driven medium. And I need to, to some extent, morph myself. My job, I feel like, is more akin to point guard. And I should be trying to set them up as much as possible, make them shine, and bring out the best in their personality and observation. And you do that very differently with different kinds of people, player, coach, older, younger, talker, non-talker, analytical, storyteller, um, and I'm always trying to find w- with the repeated partners that I have, what can I do on and off air, which I think oftentimes is even more important to help that relationship, not only because I sincerely like them, but to make the show better too. How long does it take to form a bond to build chemistry with a co-host? And I can't imagine having to do a rotating panel. Like I feel like you need time with a person in order to have that like rapport that we as fans really love to enjoy um, I think it really depends upon the person. With some, you just sit down and it's instant. And with others, you know, there's there's more exposure. Uh, it depends upon their personality. It depends upon how frequently you're together. You know, if I'm only with that person three games a year, I mean, it could take several seasons to, to really connect on that level. Uh, but there are some that, like Chris Walker, who I've done a lot of college basketball with, from the first game we were ever together, like, I love that guy. Like we, we text and talk all the time, even though we don't work together that much anymore, maybe one or two games a year. Um, but he's one of my favorite people on the planet. And you know, during COVID, we were speaking pretty much every day about our own respective joys and miseries. Um, but I, I also think in our industry, we're really lucky that most people who want to do this, and especially those that last, tend to be really good people. It's, it's hard. Every industry is bad apples. There are some, of course, um, but if you, if you last in this industry for a long time, people keep hiring you back. Part of it is you're good at your job, but another part of it is people like being with you. It's, it's very much a team effort. Ooh, that's a good, that's a good point. It's so when people are being brought onto new roles or like are sticking around, what percentage of it is like being like a good, like, you know, for a lack of a better phrase, like clubhouse guy. And what percentage is like being good at your job? Cause I feel like sometimes like, you almost want the guy that's like, you'll take the less talented person, but he's a great person as opposed to like the guy with all the talent who's like really hard to work with. Uh, I think it really depends upon who's making the decision. (laughs) And, uh, and to some extent implicit with that is also what level you're talking about. Um, I think generally at the highest level in most of our industry, uh, and I'm speaking most specifically about the network television level. um, Generally the guys with the biggest names are almost invariably going to get the most opportunities. That doesn't mean to, mean to discredit their talents or their viewpoints, um, but they generally get those opportunities. And in, in part also because you have to recognize that like there's a fresh crop of giant names every few years. You know, Every few years, someone who was a very good to great all-time player and or coach is now not playing or not coaching. Maybe not forever, but at least interested or available for the television landscape. Um, so that tends to happen a lot at the, you know, at the slightly below that to, you know, the more everyday mid tier level within those national confines. I think it can marry uh, matter a lot more. Um, and I think each network is a little different, you know, and, and within each network, there's usually more than one decision maker, depending upon the sport and the specific league, perhaps, um, but I, I do think it matters a lot. I, I do think it does. And, uh, and I, I think that also comes from the rapport that you have with the, the rest of your broadcast team, you know, in TV r- radio is mostly the play by play man's medium. You know, it's, 
you're you're giving the the eyes and ears description of everything um and it's very heavy talking wise on the play-by-play end tv is very much a team activity and that's beyond you know your analyst and your possible reporter um your producer your director the graphics person uh the td is literally making the switches all your camera ops uh if one thing goes majorly wrong with any one of those positions you'll see it and you'll feel it on the broadcast if they all shine and do great they can make a mediocre announcer feel and sound better because you're getting all the support material um and and there's a lot of interconnectivity there and a lot of chatter that happens in advance of the game and off air like hitting the talk back button in your ear the producer telling you something that when when you really feel that vibe um that's a tremendous really big deal and that's something you see particularly nfl with the the major national teams the team goes beyond the guys you're seeing on camera it it goes to everybody who's in that truck too yeah no that's that's a great point also i think maybe it's more along the lines of like yeah like everyday jobs maybe not necessarily like the on-air talent jobs but maybe just like in sports or even just in business in general you generally want to hire people that you can get along with and that like you wouldn't mind having them be your your desk mate or whatever all day so um i i think that's a large component of trying to get jobs and trying to you know move up in your career is just be a good person yeah yeah that's i i I totally agree with you i mean it's uh part of the advice that i'll i'll give at times to some uh, and i'm going to clean it up a bit for this um but don't be a jerk um like it would be great if you could be super nice and friendly all the time. And some of us are like that and naturally tend to be that way. Not everybody is. And that's okay. Don't be a jerk. That um, is something that just kind of smacks me in the face of stupidity, honestly, let alone the crassness and, you know, unnecessary, you know, uh, abrasiveness of it as a human being. But why would you do that? I mean, you see people in every industry. I've worked at Costco for years when I was a, uh, coming up through college, pushing carts and then in the meat room and in the produce room. And, um, but the why be a jerk? There's no positive value that comes from it whatsoever. If it helps you to vent as a once in a great blue moon thing, we all get there. That that's I understand that. Um, but you see the people that are repeatedly jerks and they self injure. Um, and, and I think if you're if you come with a positive attitude. Um, it's something that we see in baseball all the time, particularly in the minor leagues, uh, especially when I was in a ball, I would see it. The guys that would tend to be backup catchers or the, you know, the last or next to last reliever to make a team. They often were the highest character guys, um, work ethic and personality. And there's, a, I guarantee you they are chosen that way for a reason. There is great value in that to the whole team concept. And many of those that if they really have that passion, maybe their talent doesn't take them all the way to the big leagues or does for a fractional span of time. But if they want to stay in the game, those guys will stay in the game. It's a great point. We had uh, Matt Strom from the Phillies on, and he told a story about, like, coming up through the minors. He, he experienced, like, catchers especially, like backup catchers who thought that they should be, like, starting catchers were, like, some of the saltiest, like, most, like, gnarly people out there just because, like, they thought that they were like being denied an opportunity to start. And so like that, that just kind of like trickled throughout the clubhouse. So um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic, especially if you're, if there's people who are riding the bench who think they shouldn't be, I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine how that would impact the team culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what I witnessed, I probably saw it the most at triple a um, more. Uh, I, I think triple a is a level has changed in the last decade plus for most organizations. I can't speak to all. I only saw, you know, thin slivers of those others that were in the league I was in and more of the specific team that I was with. But, you know, all the other announcers, we're all friends. We all talk about what we see and observe and um, to some extent. And because we're out of curiosity, how do you guys handle this? This thing came up in it, with our team. Do you ever have something like this happen? What do they do? Um, and I think, I think for a long time, AAA was more of a holding tank for a lot of organizations than it was a prospect level. Um, I, I think that's changed dramatically. I think overwhelmingly teams, in part due to the economics of it, let alone the trying to win, um, are also looking at, you know, let's get as many great young players as we can and give them opportunities. 
I didn't feel like that was the case, you know, 2013, 14. Um, and so you'd wind up with some organizations would spend more money to go bring in someone as essentially in case of emergency break glass for the big leagues kind of situation. Um, and that person sometimes wasn't happy with that. Um, sometimes that person's then taking away reps from someone else um, in certain bigger organizations uh, you would hear of prospects, you know, or people that were ranked as prospects that would secretly almost wish to get traded because they felt there was very little chance they would get promoted. Um, and, and I, I think you're exactly right. I think you're, you're hitting it right on the head and, and yeah, that's humanity, right? It's everything's perspective. You can control only how you react to stuff. And, and that's part of my message to the young aspiring announcer all the time is to just try to be a kind and true, sincere person and just try to connect with people. Absolutely. One thing I'm curious about, I don't think we talked about it last time, was in your job with the Reds now, what does the pregame look like? Are you able to like go down on the field, interact with the players, like talk to them and, and maybe even get anecdotes that you can bring to the broadcast side? Like, How does that work before the game? Uh, it's not the same as it was in the minors. In the minors, I'd, I'd just be right at the cage at BP every day. I feel like that would be more invasive um, at the big league level, but the clubhouse is open every single day. So I try to go down, but I try not to go down every day. Um, I, I, I listen to my partners and to those that work with other teams, um, and I, I don't think anything is 100% true, but I, I think fractionally there are truths to all of it. And so I try to be as, as aware as possible. That's kind of their space. So if, I'm, if I have a purpose, if I have a specific question that I want to ask somebody, I'll make sure that I'm there and I'll try to catch up with that person. I don't want to linger. I don't want to like, like make them act differently because there's a media person that's hanging out or make them not be at their locker because they don't want to speak about X, Y, Z thing. Um, so I, I try to make sure that I'm, I don't go long spans of time without being seen because I, I also want accountability. I mean, there are times where I'm going to bring up things that are critical, that are, I think, appropriate and fair and part of my job. I won't belabor it. I won't repeatedly kill the guy over it. Um, but often, and this happened to the minors at times, there'd be this game of telephone where, um, you know, the player's girlfriend or relative or high school friend heard something and took it out of context or didn't understand what it meant and then told it someone else who then warps it in some other way and then it gets to the player and the player's mad well i want to have that conversation like come to me and talk to me and i, I would never do anything personal or anything that that I, I think crossed the line in any way or um and yeah if you want to yell at me then yell at me um and i think that's part of my job yeah, that's something when i speak to people who have done this longer and better than i have um, you know, something that they impress upon me too. And I think that's important. Um, but yes, there, there are some guys who are always there and who are very jovial and very upbeat and want to talk. Um, and, and you can get great stuff out of those conversations to use on the air and just great stuff to have a cool conversation with someone that loves the sport or, or loves the same entertainment thing or whatever. From going down there enough, are there certain guys that like you're cool with? Like, are there like, were there guys that you can go down and just like, you know, shoot the breeze with? Um, yeah, I think there's always a core group that, you know, you can have a kind of a running whatever or bring up the, the same kind of joke to. Um, and I, I think with this team in particular, and, and to be honest, most of my, you know, air quotes, major league experience is, is fairly limited. I did a very limited number of fill-in games for the Mets. 21 with the Reds was a weird year because uh, we weren't allowed in the clubhouse. We weren't allowed on the field at all until late July. And even then it was, it was uh, only at a certain distance and behind rope and all this other stuff. Um, and 22 was a, was a really rough year at a lot of levels. They lost a hundred games. Um, there were several trades right before the year that got compacted because of the, uh, the labor issue. And there, we weren't able to make any moves. Um, and so uh, emotionally, that was a bit of a different state. So now the, my first real experience being able to be down there in that is the 23 season where they, they fall short of where they wanted to get, but destroy the outsiders' expectations, just shatter them. And they're such a young team that it, it, it actually in many ways feels more like what my minor league situations were than what I would imagine most major league clubhouses are. And it, Excuse me. I, I think that's really cool to kind of be on the ground floor along with everyone else and kind of witnessing what's happening with this franchise. 
We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from two apparel sponsors of this podcast. The first is Zero Negative. They are a brand out to inspire and empower individuals to find a positive message in everything they do every time. They promote positivity and mindfulness in all of their products. Check them out at zeronegative.com. And last but not least, Few Will Hunt. It's one of my favorite brands out there. It's a great American company out of Philadelphia, out to restore the dignity of hard work. It is by far my favorite shirt to work out in. Check them out online at fewwillhunt.com. Now back to the episode. The 23 Reds were just such a fun group. I watched so much, so many Reds games this year. It, it just felt like it was just like a, a nonstop party. And we'll talk all about that. I, would, I did want to touch on somebody who he's a free agent now, and it doesn't look like he's coming back. It's, it's our guy, Joey Votto. Um, do you, first, like, do you think he'll ever join a booth one day? Like he's still obviously a, a capable major league player, even into his forties, but could you envision a day where, where Joey hangs the cleats up and goes into the broadcast side? Um, yes, I don't think, and, and I, I can't speak with any like real, you know, significant authority on this. Um, I would be surprised to see him do games every day to be like the, the 155 game a year guy. Um, where I could see him, and I think he would thrive. I think he would excel at almost anything he does. I mean, the guy's super smart, super talented, um, and has great passion. But I, I think if it were some kind of a, a hybrid studio game analyst role, where he's you know on a either a Fox or FS1, MLB Network, ESPN, making maybe thirty to fifty appearances a year, mostly in studio, and then is doing like a major game package where it's you know maybe six to 12 games the entire regular season and maybe part of a, a playoff package that one of those networks may have. He would be amazing at that. Um, and I think that balance, I, I could be wrong, um, but after spending that much time in baseball, um, I would, I, I don't see him doing it every single day, but doing it under like what uh, Adam Wainwright's doing right now, what Sean Casey has done with MLB network, something along those lines. I, yes, I think that could be very possible. I really hope that he stays involved in the game even after he's done playing. It would just be such a shame for like the baseball community as a whole to not have Joey Votto in it in some way, shape, or form. Um, I even went back and watched like the it was 2022, I think, where he came up to the booth and he was talking with you guys for I guess for, like a couple innings. Um, super well spoken. Like he's one of my favorite players. Um, what he's not gonna be on the Reds this year though. What what will you miss the most about Joey Votto in Cincinnati? Uh I mean, he's been the franchise for the last couple of decades. And so, you know, I'm only going into year four. So I, I still learn a lot of things from my friends that have been Reds fans for their whole lives. Um, and those that I've become friends with that I've met as a result of this job. Um, when I speak to Reds fans, particularly, I would generalize like in the probably mid to late 20s to like mid 40s range. Like Votto has been everything to them and their fandom of the franchise for basically their entire lives. I mean, he, he has been the number one focal point of everything. Um, and there's a gravitas that comes with that. There's a sense of anticipation that comes with that. Um, I think uh, when he would speak to us, um, particularly like his on the record stuff. And you saw it in his time in the booth. And he, he was very gracious to join us for multiple games while he was initially coming back from the, the surgery. Um, there is a poetry about how he views the world. He is so, um, he's such a deep thinker. He gives such weight to his words um, in part because I think he's, he's, he has that Canadian politeness about him. Like he wants to be a very nice person. He doesn't want to insult anybody. He doesn't want anything misconstrued. Um, and he's super smart. And that just comes through with the layering of his thinking. And, um, but I, I think his also his emotional reactions to huge moments, like as he really allowed, I, I didn't see the early stage Joey Votto where those that watched him at that time said that he they didn't really feel like they knew him. You know, he was more detached. He was more hyper-focused on his craft and playing all the time. Um, pretty much the entire spectrum of what I saw of Joey was this highly emotional, evocative, like interactive social media phenom um, who was just such fun. Like it was just fun to watch the man play, even how we celebrated the victories and accomplishments of his teammates. There is a kind of contagious joy about him that you can't help but miss. His first game back last year, 
with the home run and one of my favorite calls, the Joseph Daniel Votto. Where do you rank that moment and just that that home run call? It was so good. Um, I, it's really hard for me to like rank my own stuff because uh, it's true. You know, it's uh, I'm I'm also entirely self critical a lot. Um, but it's uh, that moment was awesome. I mean, it was just fantastic. It was uh, there was I I, I think with him particularly last year and I, the crowd clearly was more keenly aware of it and felt it, you know, in, in progressive building fashion all the way to his last home game that you know, they're running out of opportunities to possibly see him hit. Like he might not wear the uniform again. Um, and, and, you know, never say never. He's not a red right now. There, I, I don't think there are any plans right now for him to be a red stuff happens. Yeah, you never know. I mean, it's a, it's a weird, weird world. Um, but there was such a sense of anticipation of what he could do. You know, what could this pitch be with him at the plate? Um, and the, the you could feel from the crowd that they so desperately wanted more moments with him. Yeah, that, that um, th- there was such a connectivity between him and the fans and with how super emotional him standing in that last home game. Um and, and he doesn't really show that side as much in that kind of a setting, uh, but it affected him. And he talked about it afterward and you, you could see and feel that in, in every single way. Absolutely. He's just, he's such a great clubhouse leader too. You mentioned with all the young players they had coming up, it felt like having Joey there was kind of like the veteran leadership that was perfect for that team that year. Um, yeah. It just, it felt like he connected with the younger generation. Well, I remember him flipping his hat around for a post-game oh. interview and uh, he was like trying to be like one of the cool kids. And I was just, like, <laughs> I, could you could you sense that like like how how do you view his his leadership and his locker room presence? Is that something that like doesn't get talked about enough in your opinion? Yeah, I think uh, to me the shot that springs to mind as you talk about that is how often he was with a number of players, but most specifically Ellie De La Cruz. Immediately after their at bats, the two of them were almost always hip to hip, shoulder to shoulder, an iPad in between them in the dugout, breaking down the prior at bats. Um, I mean, that is otherworldly. I mean, the, yeah, Ellie is, is the next possible face of this franchise. Um, I, I think Matt McClain's probably their best player right now and is coming off the best season. But when I talk to young kids today, so I, with Joey, it's probably that 25 to 45 spectrum is where I, that's a real sweet spot. When I talk to any kid, I was just at an elementary school and a middle school this week, any kid that's 15 and under, and I ask them, do you like the Reds? Yes, I love the Reds. Who's your favorite player? De La Cruz. Ellie, 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 Ellie. Um, The idea that Ellie had Joey Votto throughout all of last year, or most of last year, I mean, granted, there was AAA time there, um, and then spent a lot of his offseason with a combination of Robinson Cano drills and time with Juan Soto. Uh, I mean, that is spectacular. Um, and, and I would totally agree that Joey, um, his work ethic is something that I was told about before I, I witnessed what it was like on an everyday basis. And the shape he keeps himself in, the amount of early work that he did every single day, the the nuance that he could feel in his own play and almost self-diagnose what problems were and how to best fix them. And uh, I mean, the idea that he recreated himself in that 21 season and just said, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of average. I might strike out more, but I'm going to hit a lot of homers. And he did. I mean, in his late thirties, he just said, "Ah, I'm just going to do this now. That was amazing. And that's, I think that is an example for the younger players um, that is carrying right now into the, the advent of spring training with how many guys were there early uh, and and are almost essentially ahead of schedule on many ways. I think in part because yes, they're self-driven and they have their own goals and many of them have spoken about making the playoffs. But I think that example, Joey is one of those signature examples in the work that it takes to be great. He's the best. Uh, My favorite game from last year. And I wanted to get your take on it was June 23rd. It was against the Braves it was Ellie De La Cruz cycle night. It was Votto two homer night. I remember it so well. I had all my friends over. We watched the MLB TV, the Reds broadcast, of course. Um, and it was the most fun I've had in nine innings in a long time. I'm wondering how much fun was it to call that game? Uh, that's, I didn't fall asleep until about 4 a.m. Um, 
I, I took my dog for an extra walk at around three in the morning. I, I couldn't fall asleep. Like I, I was just on that kind of high. Um, that was the most fun I have ever had calling a baseball game in my life. Um, and one of the greatest pure sporting experiences of my life. Um, because the crowd, like, and I think I said it during that game, or I know I did during that stretch when the 12 game win streak and, um, it felt like a rock concert. Like the hair on my arms was standing up. Like it's, it's that kind of contagious energy that almost unspoken. You're just looking around at other people and with eye contact, you're saying to each other, like, are you feeling this? Like this is transcendent. You know, it's, it's that kind of communal joy that is, is in the air. And that sounds BS, but if you've ever been to anything like that, you know it's true. You feel it. Um, and you could see it in those players. Uh, and I think part of it is, you know, you know, Ellie in his first two weeks of the big leagues does something that nobody's done since the late 80s. And it was the guy who has been one of his mentors and part of the reason he wears 44. And, you know, Joey as like, you know, the other end of the, the spectrum generationally has his own giant night. They're rocking the black City Connect unis. The stadium is sold out and going crazy. Um, and, and remember the contrast, because I, I think that perspective helps a lot. You know, they are, were coming off of one of the worst attendance seasons for the Reds in decades the year before. And they had a horrendous start to that season until the Texas Rangers series kind of turned it around. They had the worst three-day weekend attendance draw within the confine of the 23 season during its its early stage in the 20-year history of Great American Ballpark. And then that brave series, starting with that Friday night game, was the most well-attended three-game series in the 20-year history of Great American Ballpark. Um, the, the, the turnaround was enormous. And that was the last game in what proved to be a 12-game win streak. They're playing the Braves that were deservedly the barometer of are you good or not? You know, and they're able to get into this back-and-forth slugfest and hang with them, and that night they beat them. Um, and while the Braves took the series, the other two games were pretty darn fun and competitive, too. Uh, that night will be forever burned into my brain. I mean, that was just an otherworldly, stellar, amazing night. Was it? I think Ellie had the triple to cap off the cycle. Like he did. It's oh, it's the uh, coolest. And and so our our stats guy Joel Luckup is a huge part of of everything we do. I mean, beyond the information that he brings, his personality. I love the guy. He's a great friend, um, and he, he he loves the Reds and knows a lot about the organization. Uh, a fun fact: many of the fun facts you will hear about a Red. You know, first time a red has since, or the most by a red, it, whatever context, he has his own database that he made on his own that's uh, Excel driven. And a lot of those nuggets come from him. And we put it on the screen, and then the reds verify it through Elias, and then it's put out as the, the, the nugget. But he's the one who discovers it, he's the one who even thinks to look a lot of these things up. Um, and so he's been a cycle geek. Like since I started one of our first ever conversations, he talked about just so you know, every time a guy's a triple shy, I'm going to be poking you about this. And, uh, and, you know, it was kind of a running joke over several years, but when Ellie, before he came up, I mean, even when we knew like he's going to be in the big leagues at some point, he screams cycle, a skill set screams. TJ Friedel has a lot of triples. I mean, and great American ballpark is such a hard ballpark to triple in. Yet those two guys are kind of built for it in some way um, that it, it was a matter of time to me. I, I think it's a matter of time until Ellie is going to hit an inside the park homer. He's probably going to have more than one. Um, now, where and how that happens and, you know, does it win a game or something like that? That's different. But that's what inflames all of it. It's like we had that building anticipation. There was chatter in the booth after a second at bat. Could the cycle be coming tonight? You know, and then so like it, it keeps building. And, like, they're going back and forth trying to win the game. So, like, India scores on the play from first base. Like, th th that was a huge – it was a one-run game. It was 12-11 final. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just so much fun. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bats podcast, the original Fudge Kitchen. 
It is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. The original Fudge Kitchen makes all of their fudge in-store guaranteed a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bats sent you. Check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com as they are shipping fudge and sweet treats all across the country. Now back to the episode. How excited are you for the Pirates and Red Series this year with O'Neill Cruz and Ellie De La Cruz? I mean, they're going to do stuff that's never been seen in baseball before. Yeah, I mean, they're both super, super talented. Both, you know, freaks of athletes, huge, super strong arms, immense power, excellent speed. Um, yeah, I think the division, I, I, I think you can make a really good argument. This is the most competitive division, top to bottom, in baseball. Not the best overall, but that I could see anyone finishing in first, and I could see almost anyone finishing in last. I, I think that's very, very possible. I don't know what the Cardinals are this year. I, I do think they added a lot pitching-wise. I would expect, you know, great things out of Arenado and Goldschmidt. They have a lot of really good young players that had inconsistencies in terms of health and performance. The Pirates, I think, are way better than many average fans realize. Um, they have an excellent back end of their bullpen. They have one of the top pitching prospects in baseball is probably going to come up at some point. Um, they have a, a deep, very athletic lineup that's got some sneaky power. Um, the, the Brewers are the Brewers, and you know, they add Reese Hoskins. Uh, they have question marks in their rotation on a relative level. Their bullpen is amazing, and basically everybody's back. Um, yeah, I, I think, and the Cubs are the Cubs. Uh, I think their pitching is is better than people realize. Whether Bellinger comes back or not as we're recording this, um, yeah, that, that's a major, major impact. But they, they did add arguably the best manager in the game. I mean, watching what Council's done with the Brewers, the, the man's a, a magician. Like his feel for how and when to use those bullpen pieces, I don't think nationally he has gotten nearly enough credit. I think he's been a huge part of, of the Brewers' success over the course of my time with the Reds. Um, so I, I do think – beyond the, the Pirates, and yes, and, and because of that specific factor of David Cruz and O'Neill Cruz, yes, there is that, that that's a huge selling point, especially if both guys are cooking and playing well. Um, but I, I really believe this division is incredibly, incredibly competitive. That's interesting. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because, like, you don't hear a lot of people talking about the NL Central in that regard. A lot of times you hear people talk about the NL Central as, well, you know, it's – I guess it's like what you said. It's like they're not going to have the best teams. Like there's not going to be a hundred win team in the NL Central. But it, you, could you see this being a division that comes down to the very end? Like all of that would be bunched up. Yes. Yeah, I think that's very possible. I also think there's enough. There, there's help coming for everyone. I mean, Jackson Churio obviously is the standout guy with the Brewers. Um, the Reds have another wave coming. Um, I think you'll see more outfield help early, perhaps some relief arms. There's a little bit of a gap where triple A is not quite as deep, but double A, high A, low A have a lot of ability. And it's not outside the realm of possibility that one or two of those guys has a great first 200 plate appearances, maybe gets a bump up, particularly if there were an injury or a need or something. Could some of those guys help the big leagues maybe even this year? Yeah, I, I think that's very – look at last year's Reds team. Um so I think there's a lot of help coming. Um, you know, Cubs and Cardinals also have strong systems. The NL Central, if you look at the prospect rankings, is a fairly dominant division. Um, so I also think because of that, uh, if it is as bunched up and possibly as tight as it could be, I think you could see more aggressive trades coming from this division. I, I think the team that winds up winning it might be the one that, that takes the right risks and they pay off at the right time to augment what they already have in place. Um, and, and that could be the deciding factor. It's been a lot of moves this winter too. I mean, look, the Cardinals have added so much, like all these teams are, have sneakily added a lot to their teams. The Reds have done that as well. I didn't see all the, like the moves the Reds were going to make. They added to the rotation. I, I was reading uh, C Trent had an article. It's like 11 pitchers for five spots. And they obviously added to the infield with Candelario and even like Josh Harrison on a minor league deal. Um, this is a lot of competition this spring for the Reds. There's a lot of a lot of guys and not a lot of spots. Is that kind of competition you think going to be a good thing overall for this team? Yes, decidedly so. Um, I, I think I think the the best teams are born out of deep, high level competition. Um, and, and I don't think whatever breaks camp is the finished product that's going to go the entire year. I, I think you're going to see mixing and matching because there will be injury. 
Um, there will be regression. I mean, somebody who's coming back off of a very good year, whether it's a rookie who debuted and did great or whatever, somebody's going to take a step back. It's baseball. It's a really hard sport. I don't think that gets talked about nearly enough. Um, and, you know, th- there's going to be opportunity for someone else. I, I would agree, though, that I think uh, this is arguably – the most important spring training for the Reds in a long time, because there, there is a noticeably high bump in expectation. There's very little in the way of true defined, like these are cemented. Ellie's going to be the shortstop pretty much every day. That, that, that seems to be the case, which would mean that Matt McLean would be the second baseman most days. If Ellie's at short um, beyond that, it, Tyler Stevenson and Luke Maley are the two primary catchers. There's not a ton of organizational depth there. Almost every other spot is going to mix and match to some extent. TJ Friedel in center. And I would like, even with him as a lefty, I'd like to see him play most days, even if a lefty is pitching. I think he's more than proven, especially with his bunt game, that he can handle that. But starting rotation um, and many of those other bullpen options beyond Alexis Diaz to to end the game, there's a lot of fluidity there. And I, I think there's going to be an import to Nick Crawl has talked about it, that, uh, he used the analogy about Bronson Arroyo, essentially, like many smart veteran pitchers during a lot of his spring training time in the big leagues, was kind of getting the best version of himself, didn't really care what his results were until the very, very end. And then he would turn it on and he would look great. And he would be great in the season. And, uh, and Nick said that that luxury doesn't exist for these guys. Like You're competing for a spot now. Like Your start in early March matters if it's horrendous or great that's going to influence the decision to some extent um i also think and chris welsh brought this up the other day that options are going to be a giant deal it's part of not just the business of baseball it's part of the smart management of baseball guys that have options are far more likely even if they do perform well probably going to spend some form of time in the minor leagues as there's overlap and competition um with that in mind i think a lot of the Reds' success this year will be determined by making the right choices at the right time for who should be in what roles, yeah, depending upon the lineup, in the rotation, in the higher leverage bullpen spots. I don't think that's going to be the same core group. You know, It's not true in baseball generally, but I think even more extreme with the Reds, finding and riding those hot hands, knowing when to get off the cold streak and get onto the hot streak is going to be a major, major deal. Absolutely. I've always said that like the manager is in the the front office, like the ones pulling the strings of like who starts, who doesn't like, I I think of the Orioles. I think the Orioles and the Reds are in that same similar kind of boat with a lot of young guys, a lot of mixing and matching. And it's up to, you know, David Bell this year to be the one to put, you know, the right people in the right spot at the right time. And um, he did a great job last year. I'd like to see the Reds take a Orioles size bump get to hundred wins. I, I don't know if that's possible for 2024, but I've already said that the 24 reds will be the 23 Orioles. So I'm trying to speak that into existence. Yeah. I, I, I like what you're thinking. Um, and, and you can see the parallel and you could really see it when they played each other out of Camden yards. I mean, there was, there's a lot of, you know, almost synchronicity to, to the two teams and how they're built. Um, I think the, uh, I, I, I think there's, there's a, a lot of weight to that. And, and a lot of it's going to depend for the Reds. I think they're going to score runs. I, I have a lot of confidence in the depth of this lineup. Um, and I think they're going to find the best combinations on most days. Um, that, that They're going to be more than fine, particularly at home. But, but overall, um, I do think the starting rotation, finding the right arms for the right amount of time. I mean, you know, look last year, Graham Ashcraft is a super talented pitcher. He had a nearly two-month stretch that was really rough. I mean, really, really bad. He had another two-month stretch where he looked amazing and was was eating up a ton of innings, facing a very minimal number of guys. And he also has an emotional fire to him that is highly contagious for the rest of that team. And I, I think spills into the offensive side of things. Um, but you have you know him coming off a major toe injury, Nick Lodolo coming off a major tibia injury. Um, I love what Brandon Williamson can bring to this team. I thought he was a huge piece. I, I also wonder, um, is it possible that any of those rotation options might be in the major league bullpen? You know, is that a better choice? Um, and I think, again, those that have and don't have options are going to be a giant part of that whole you know, decision-making process. Yeah. No doubt. 
All right, I'd like to end with our new guy, Ricky. Let's let's bring him in here if if he's if he's in. Um, he's gonna ask any questions that I didn't ask, and he's also gonna do any other things he's been had on his mind. So let's see if he is around. Yeah, I'm here. Um, hey, John. Uh, so I kind of had a, I had a couple of questions, but you know, two main ones, if that's okay. Sure, of course. Perfect. So um, so my main question would be. You know, the Reds had so many young players that came up last year and performed kind of not really to, you know, their expectations or really exceeded everything, um, you know, with Friedel and McLean and Ellie. So I was kind of wondering if you noticed anything with the team or in the ballpark, maybe the culture that kind of allowed them to, you know, perform so well and feel so comfortable at the big league level right away. Yeah, I think uh, David Bell's coaching staff does an excellent job uh, of – trying to tailor their coaching to each individual player. Like they want the player to shine to the best way that they can individually. Um, Derek Johnson, who leads the pitching staff is one of the greatest pitching coaches going and a great dude. Um, You know, his turn of phrase all the time is be great at what you're good at, you know, take those core strengths and hyper-focus on them. And then we'll help you with everything else. Uh, But but if you, you have a great fastball, lean on the fastball. Um, and, and I think we see that to some extent, you know, with that same philosophy with everybody. Uh, I think there's a, a readily a recognition and an embracing of the idea that, you know, because some of these young players got to the big leagues like McLean and Steer and Encarnacion Strand and Ellie, doesn't mean they're finished products. Nobody is. They're still developing. They're developing at the major league level. Um, and I think you see the work that they're doing you know, not even as much always on the field. A lot of it can be in the tunnel underneath uh, what they're doing on the iPad, what they're doing in terms of talking about workout routine uh, is a giant, giant part of the success that they've had is that that recognition and tailoring things to be a little more player specific, that there are organizational ideas and doctrines, but let's make sure we're coaching these guys as individuals. Yeah. So they're just letting, letting them be themselves and kind of yeah show that personality. Cool. Yeah. Um, so then I guess my next question is, I know you kind of talked about this a little bit with, you know, the energy that was in the ballpark when Ellie came up during that 12 game winning stretch. So I was just wondering from the, from the broadcasters booth, how do you kind of feel that shift happen and kind of, does it take a while or is it kind of one day you just feel there's a lot more people here. There's a buzz around the ballpark and, you know, everyone's here and kind of also, I mean, how fast does that kind of go away? Um, I mean, I think it could go away super fast if, if you crash and burn. I mean, it's winning matters, you know, particularly at the major league level. I, I think uh, with the Reds specifically in 23, uh, there's a big asterisk to all of it because a, a big chunk of that winning streak happened on the road and, and it happened against some pretty high level competition. I mean, the, so there was this like building idea of what this team was becoming and a chance to realize it on the back end with the home fans. So it's not as if, you know, they were winning uh, 12 straight games all during a homestand that they enter, you know, eight games under 500. And then, you know, all right, well, they took a series from so-and-so and and they're they're not great, but then they took a series from another team. Um, So so I think uh, even nationally, they were getting a lot more highlight play, a lot more chatter. Um, I think they connected with their energy and personality with a lot of people uh, that are just baseball fans, let alone Reds fans. Um, So I I don't know that – I think if it were, if the schedule were set up differently and how everything manifested itself, I might've felt it more organically. Uh, Perhaps in part, like the series that I think of is the Rangers series Uh, because the Reds were off to a really rough start going into that series and the Rangers were in first place. Turns out they had a pretty good year. They were a pretty good team. Their bullpen at that time was not very good. And they had big leads that the Reds ravaged and took down. And that's, a driving consistency of what last year's Reds team was. And I do think in that specific regard, that, that now that I'm kind of thinking out loud about it, um, that kind of became an identity as the year wore on, the rally Reds, the idea that they're going to be down two, four, six runs, and they're going to come back. Yeah, you know, they did it to the Dodgers. You know, they did it to the Braves. Um, and that was a more cumulative kind of slow burn that – there was that kind of talk in the booth. We're looking at each other. Like, are you feeling this? Are you seeing this? Do you think this is happening right now? And then with each passing day, it became more and more tangible. And I don't know that there was one day where it was like, aha, it's arrived. But at some point you kind of knew, yeah, like this is a thing. This is, and it's fun as heck. It's one of the great joys of, of this opportunity. 
Yeah, I'm sure they were, they were having so much fun in the field, probably contributing to the the whole winning success too. Um, yeah. So then, I guess my last question would be, with a moment like I know you talked about already a little bit too, the the LA Daily Cruise cycle. With a moment like that, how do you kind of find the balance between knowing the right thing to say and also, you know, letting the moment kind of speak for itself? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and I think that's one of the core things on TV um, that you need to do in the big moment. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to make sure I point out everything that's happening in that moment. So, I mean, number one, the Reds are trying to win the game against the Braves and Indy winds up scoring. So I, I made sure that I was tracking him during the course of the play to note that that had happened. So the viewer was aware of it. Cause I don't think we had a camera shot of it. Um, and because in part, you know, the camera shot is on Ellie because he's a triple shy of something that hasn't happened in decades and he's going to third um, and they're kind of happening almost simultaneously. That's how fast he is. So like he's easily getting into third as, as India's wind up coming home. Um, I think you need to emotionally try to match what the crowd was doing. And I hope and think I did that. Uh, I mean, you saw the crowd shots after, like that's what we were feeling and seeing leading up to that. I mean, even as he shoots out of the box, you could kind of feel and hear that um, during the course of the stadium. Um, I want to give some historical context to it because it is independently significant in that regard. I want to make sure I get that in ideally married up with, as our graphic comes up, we were off by a little bit on that, uh, but it was fairly close. Uh, and then lay out like the, the best thing you can do. One of the great game callers that I've ever watched was Pat Summerall on the NFL. And I, I think Joe Buck does a very Pat Summerall-esque call with uh, a lot of his, uh, his football work. And one of Pat's greatest strengths, one of Joe's greatest strengths is laying out at the big moment. Uh, like when you have a full stadium that is full throat in celebration or reacting to something that happened, one of the best things you can do is say nothing and just let the pictures talk. And I think we let that happen for, somewhere in the six, seven, eight second range, um, kind of give it that beat and then accent, then make sure my partner's involved, you know, follow what our director and producer are doing. Is there anything independent there? Um, but yeah, I think that's the basic structure where like conversely on radio, I would say generally in a giant moment, particularly a championship, like ending moment on radio You'd want to give the, the specifics that the listener needs because they can't see. Like, it's over. This is what the score was. Um, this is what that final play was. Give it a breath. Let some crowd. And then backfill with some more historical context or um, something that kind of summarizes it. That, that There's feel. Where on TV, I think you want to do that a little earlier on the front end. Usually, every, every moment's a little different. Um, and then lay out. And then just be quiet. Just let the game carry. And, and that moment, I'm glad you asked that because I, I think that moment was among many that were built for it. And I, I hope we did that well. It was it was the best. Yeah. Like, great question, by the way, Ricky. Also, that was great. Uh, my last question, John, this has been great. Um, the Ellie De La Cruz, that ball had a family. Did you have that one in your bag before he had that? Like, come no. on, or did that come off the top? No, that was an, an honest, immediate emotional reaction to him murdering a baseball. I mean, I, I had seen the videos of him hitting outlandish, you know, not just homers, but everything in the minors. And I knew what his exit velo stuff was. I knew the guy hit the ball hard. But he's facing Noah Syndergaard, who, you know, is not what he once was. But I remember a lot of great Noah Syndergaard. And it's his first big league homer. It was his second game in the big leagues. And he nearly hit it out of the stadium. I mean, <laughs> it hit the wire netting that's on the back of the last row or it's skipping out to go into the Ohio River. Um, no, that was just the, the sincere, in-the-moment, emotional reaction. Um, that's just kind of what sprung to mind. I, I, I wanted to say he killed it, but I wanted to say it in a way that was not that blunt. And that's what came out of my mouth it's it's one of my favorite did you have a lot of people after like reaching out like we had uh, c trent on he was like that's my favorite home run call 
Yeah, that's uh, so we have Reds Fest is a giant fan festival where uh, the overwhelming majority of the team goes. It's awesome. I mean, they get 20,000 people at the the Energy Center downtown. There's one giant stage and a bunch of smaller stages and then suites upstairs and there's Q&As and we do game shows with the players. It's a tremendous experience. Um, Now, part of it for us as the announcers, each of us takes turns in a, a booth where we just do a meet and greet with fans for 45 minutes, an hour. Um, And the overwhelming majority of the fans that I met were asking me to autograph something and either put it's a cycle or that ball had a family. Um, And those were by by far the two most common requests or some story about that in some way. Um, And there were t-shirts that were made up by a couple of companies in town, one of which uh, sent me some. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was pretty cool. That was, uh, I, make no bones about it. I mean, the, the reason that moment is a moment is because Ellie is an otherworldly <laughs> talent and I'm just the fat guy sitting down yelling about it. I'm for sure. Trying to find one of those t-shirts now. I need, I need that. Like I need air. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. Uh, John, every time you come on, it's a treat. I, I love every time you come on. So thank you so much for giving us a little of your time. Uh, I know it's a crowded traveling weekend. You're doing a lot of stuff. So um, you're the man and, uh, Hey, let's go reds. I'm going to get the MLB TV again this year. We're watching a lot of, uh, like Valley sports, Ohio. We're going to do that. I love it. I love it. Keep up your great work. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, hopefully we can connect at some point when we're out East. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band stick figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music. Wait up.